Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Well, this week, I am very happy to say that I am rejoined by one of my favorite people to talk shop with, the one and only, the master of disaster, the former Bolt Action TO of CanCon, Australia's largest Bolt Action event, and just a rad individual all around, Pete West. Welcome back to Cast Heist, man. Thank you very much, Fred. Always a pleasure to hear one of your intros. It's uh, very embarrassing, but uh, peps me up no end for the rest of the day. <laughs> Good, because you're worth celebrating. Um, and you, in the past, have been on this show to lay down some great historical perspective and some bolt-action tactics uh, to help bring bolt-action back to cast dice. And today you are doing just that. And we are going to dig into... A, a very iconic unit from World War II, one that gets talked about uh, and mentioned in a lot of places, but rarely do we see an entire podcast episode about German paratroopers, the Fallschirmjäger. And so today, we are going to jump into all things Green Devils, and we're going to start with early war and work our way all the way through to the end of World War II, uh, we're going to dig into some history. We're going to dig into tactics on the tabletop. We're going to talk about weapons and equipment. And then we are going to dig into what miniature ranges make Fallschirmjäger models. Because there's a lot. And as always, you are you have scratched the deep, dark corners of the internet to bring us the best information. I, am, I have a very layman's understanding of... Falschmjäger in general, but you're going to bring some. You're going to bring the heat, so to speak. You're going to bring us some high quality today, Pete. And I'm excited. I'm oh, I'm excited. So before we dig in, what made you excited about the Falschmjäger enough to want to talk about them today? Because this is absolutely your idea, and it's a killer one. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Um, I look. I've long had a bit of a fascination with Falschermager, and I think it probably goes all the way back to Airfix plastic 172nd kits when I was a kid. I actually had a box of Falschermager, so I think that there was a bit of imprinting going on, those um, jumpsuits and those unique helmets. Mm -hmm. um, for some reason, have always stuck with me. So as I got into wargaming in later life, I've always had Falschermjäger, so I've got a 6mm Falschermjäger army, I've got a 10mm Falschermjäger army, I've got a 15mm Falschermjäger army, and more than one 28mm Falschermjäger army. So, a bit of a mild obsession, possibly. I was going to say, <laughs> sounds like uh, you're a fan, uh, to put it mildly. But I guess let's dig into the Falschermjäger. Let's get to the meat and potatoes. Let's talk about Falschermjäger in bolt action. Now, the FJ have had a huge presence in the bolt-action tabletop. In addition uh, to being in just the basic army book, there's four other Falschmager units, uh, different entries, uh, 
and seven theater selectors across the theater and campaign books. That includes a full army list in the D-Day U.S. selector campaign book. Now, this prominence is driven by a couple of factors. Uh, now, that, of course, their elite reputation, uh, their esprit de corps is famous. Uh, they were a very elite and profi uh, proficient force on, in World War II and on the bolt action tabletop. Their presence in almost every theater that Germany was involved in, they had, as you say, that very iconic, distinct look. Uh, and that changes over the course of the war, but they still maintained a distinct look from other German forces, even when their uniform changed. Um, and the perception that they don't have some of the awful historical baggage that some other German units do, which is one of the things that, I like about them that they're sort of a non-offensive <coughs> German army. Uh, it also helps that a large number of Falschmjäger models are made by a ton of different companies. And I, I think outside of core allied and access army units, they may be the most or one of the most available units for World War II. I think the only other one that jumps out at me might be U.S. Airborne uh, and, of course, Band of Brothers. But before talking about these ranges, I guess it's important we should dig into the historical context about the Falschmjäger, how they came to be, and how they changed over the course of the war. Now, Pete, that is absolutely your wheelhouse. So um, before we dig in, do you think uh, there's anything else that we should cover, or do you want to just dig into pre-war, how they came to be? No, but let's just jump into the history and uh, get the show on the road, so to speak. So uh, the FJ go back to um, the early, uh, the, sort of the mid-1930s. So they're actually a pet project of Hermann Goering, as many people know, may know, but what many people probably don't realise, actually preceded his um, uh, rise to the top of the Luftwaffe. He actually set up the first... Um, parachute unit while he was still chief of the police. He had been inspired by some of the Soviet airborne exercises of the early 1930s. Um, and while he was still police chief, um, he set up this parachute unit within the police. Now, they quickly transferred to the Luftwaffe later in 1935. So they were only in the police for about um, a bit under 12 months. But it's interesting that they actually started outside the Luftwaffe, which probably many people don't realise. I didn't know but, that. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how Goering justified. I'd love to see the business case for that. Police that jump out of the sky. Right? Um, but anyway, <laughs> I think by that stage, they'd largely given up on the fiction that Goering was running a police force as opposed to <laughs> something else. But mm -hmm. uh, still, <laughs> still a bit odd. Um, so after they were set up, um, it was just really a story of um, growth that um, they kept expanding them during the uh, 1930s. So by 1938, they'd expanded to a division and um, the, and they were later to expand again just before the start of the war. Um, but the interesting thing about the Luftwaffe is they were an all-volunteer unit and and they really maintained that status until quite late in the war. And technically, they never actually lost it, although some of the volunteering towards the end of the war was a bit questionable. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it was part of their um, their mythos that they were an all-volunteer unit. And really, they 
saw themselves as an elite unit right from the beginning. So um, they were had set very high standards. Um, the men trained very hard. They had the op- they had access to the best of equipment. So certainly by the start of World War II, they were already an elite force and they were well equipped and well trained. Yeah, now that reminded me the the all volunteer aspect of it. Of course, I think I'm going to be drawing a couple comparisons to other paratroopers in World War II throughout this episode. But that reminds me very much of the American paratroopers who were also a volunteer force when they first started out at least. And they, you know, they wanted the best of the best and they trained hard, they worked hard, and that's where their sort of a street esprit de corps started. Um, before they were, uh, you know, they had those victories on the battlefield to to improve their reputation. And I feel like that's sort of the same situation here. Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, something common to a lot of the paratrooper forces that they were volunteers, in part because, you know, in the, particularly in the early 1930s and 40s, jumping out of an aeroplane with a parachute was um, right. a very high-risk activity. I mean, it's it's not without risk today, but it's probably not very dangerous in reality. Whereas, you know, the you look at some of the stuff they were doing, there were lots of firsts about, you know, the types of parachutes a unit they were using, the types of planes they were jumping out of, how they were learning how to jump and all that sort of stuff. So it was quite a dangerous profession. So it wasn't just the fact that, you know, they expected these men to... Um, land behind enemy lines and fend for themselves. So obviously they had to be good soldiers. It was partly the fact that they really had to be volunteers because you you needed people who were willing to take a very high degree of risk um, uh, in this early age of um, parachute technology. Yeah, exactly. Well, as the war kicked off, I mean, obviously early war Germany was famous for blitzkrieg tactics. Um, how did the Fallschirmjäger sort of slot into that slash what was their role early war? Because they had some pretty significant victories early on. I'm thinking particularly around Ibn Amal. Again, I have a very layman's understanding of uh, the old Fallschirmjäger here. Can you talk to us about how the Fallschirmjäger fit into the, the German military plans and what their role was uh, going into early war? Yeah, um, well, Eben Amal is a good example. I mean, they were designed to do what's called the coup de main, that is to seize key um, bridges or roads or um, uh, fortifications that may block the block the advance. So they were supposed to be dropped ahead um, and then hold for, you know, maybe 24 hours or so while the advancing forces caught up to them and, you know, made use of the bridge or got past the fortifications or whatever it was. So Ebene Mahl is a perfect example. Obviously, the fort was a significant roadblock to the German Blitzkrieg, so um, crossing the river there. So they had to take that fort out, and uh, the gliders landed right on top of it and and managed to take it out. So a handful of men took out a a fort and a couple of hundred defenders. So it's a perfect example. and, but you saw that more generally throughout the Blitzkrieg campaign, a number of examples of particularly airfields. The Fallschirmjäger were used to seize airfields. Um, that's both to stop the enemy using them, but also to allow Luftwaffe aircraft to start moving into forward bases very quickly. That was part of the strategy. The aircraft are relatively short range, so they wanted their Stukas to have forward operating bases as quickly as possible. So um, it was about aiding the Blitzkrieg, using the Fallschirmjäger to 
get ahead of the forces mm-hmm. and is the way forward. Um, and they were quite successful early war. Um, number of, the main reason for that is most countries other than Germany didn't have paratroopers and they mm-hmm. didn't understand what paratroopers could do. So they didn't prepare or were not ready to defend against paratroopers. So that was really one of the keys to their success in early war. People just didn't expect a fully formed fighting force to be dropping from the skies on top of them. Yeah, exactly. And they also, as you say, they had some of the best equipment uh, going at both at that point and later on for infantry forces uh, in the form of they had more submachine guns, they had um, shape charges, uh, they had a lot of uh, different things. I'm thinking of the shape charges they used to crack a, a Bonhamal uh, in particular, yeah. but they also had other equipment that they used. And so they had the training, they had the mobility. Uh, people weren't used to facing such a force and they had the equipment. Uh, this just sounds like a combination for success, right? Yeah, and they did quite well. Although um, the early war period, you sort of see people beginning to understand what the threat was and um, what the Fallschirmjäger could do. So each operation gets a little more costly and a little more deadly Mm -hmm. right up to the point where you're continuing to get success, but it comes at a much higher, higher cost um, up to the point of Crete where... Um, you start to reach the point where you're questioning was the success worth worth the cost. Now, a lot of people have talked about Crete in different places and how that sort of ended the Fallschirmjäger's run as a as a proper paratrooping uh, paratroop dropping force. And after that, they took on the role of a more of a elite traditional infantry force, even if they are being often transported by planes from place to place. They weren't necessarily jumping out of those planes place to place, um, if that makes sense. What made Crete such a game changer? Well, it really, as you said, was the end of this run of similar operations. And the British and allies had just learnt their lessons. And um, they were, despite the fact they lost, they were actually prepared for a paratrooper attack. They thought that was going to be the main avenue of attack. And so the airfield defences were prepared um, for that. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the Allies lost on Crete, but it certainly wasn't because they didn't anticipate a German parachute attack. And um, the attacks on the airfield was where they took the heaviest casualties because they were just very bloody because the um, Allies had prepared for them. So um, it was really at that point that I guess not just the casualties, but I think the Germans also realised that they couldn't keep doing the same thing they had done previously because it was just too costly now that everyone um, knew how to, uh, knew what a threat the Fallschirmjäger posed and how to prepare and um, counter for that type of attack. Yeah. Well, I, I know we're going to get into uniforms later, but can you talk to us a little bit about the iconic look that and I guess the distinct look that Fallschirmjäger uniforms had during that era, because I often think of Fallschirmjäger uniforms as being the ones from this era, even though I know that this was only the beginning of the war, that they wore those almost shorts-over-pants look, right? Yeah. So the Fallschirmjäger had two types of jumpsuits in the war, really, and the first one was... Um, distinct in the fact that the leg openings, um, so it's like a big onesie, 
Um, yes. The leg openings, <laughs> the leg openings were sort of stitched. Um, so you actually climbed into the suit and put your legs through the openings, um, which gave it that very much sort of high shorts look down um, through, uh, at the bottom of the suit. Mm -hmm. Whereas relatively early in the war, although it took a little while to start getting them out to the troops, they changed to a new type of jumpsuit where the leg openings was actually um, put together by press studs. And so that changed the look slightly. It meant that um, the short, when, it, when they were done up for jumping, um, the shorts looked much more baggy. And more often than not, when they're on the ground for mobility, they opened those legs up and it looked like a large sort of greatcoat on them. Mm -hmm. um, so the early war look is this very much green onesie look, even, although they did produce some camouflage versions. Whereas by the time of Crete and certainly um, shortly thereafter, they'd started moving to this second type of jumpsuit and you start seeing much more this jacket or coat type look uh, with particularly with troops on the ground. And is it also the early war where they didn't have the helmet covers? Yeah, they tended not to wear helmet covers in early war because they were actually jumping a lot and um, having things on your helmet is just something to get caught in the slipstream when you're jumping and it's either going to rip off and in worst case scenario rip off and get caught in your parachute and potentially do some damage so they they um, tended not to wear helmet covers and certainly not sort of netting and camouflage type stuff on their helmets when they were jumping in that um, early war period up to Crete. And is this the era where Falschmeger were famous for having blue helmets or is that something that sort of changed throughout <laughs> the war? Because I, I, people do mention FJ blue helmets from time to time, and I've seen them on models, but I, I always just see them in a, in a mix of miniatures, and it seems to be different eras, and I'm never quite sure, like, they seem to be uh, ochre in one picture and blue in another. Was there, what was yep. going on with that? So, again, this is one of the things where um, I'm put it out to the worldwide internet if anyone can provide some further information i would love to hear it but the short version is there is a there's a blue uniform and blue helmet um that you you can sometimes see in drawings and and um pictures although not necessarily period pictures that i haven't been able to confirm whether there's passionate arguing about whether it was actually issued or not and whether certainly whether that was ever used in world war ii um Certainly, the vast majority of FJ by World War II were using um, that um, FJ green um, type jumpsuits and helmets and changing to camouflage short, uh, within about 12 months after that. So the blue, the blue uniform and, and blue helmet is a bit of a bit of a question about whether A, it existed and B, if it existed, how much it was actually used. But having said that, I do have an early war <laughs> Falschmager Force in 10 mil contained completely in blue on the basis that no one has been able to adequately prove to me that it didn't exist. Now, Pete, I mentioned some of the weapons that the Falschmager were using in this era earlier, but I wasn't terribly specific. Now, we are talking uniforms. What gear did they generally carry around in the early war besides obvious rifles? Were they using MG-38s at this point? Uh, so the Falschmjäger, uh, like the rest of the Luftwaffe, largely used the MG-34 early in the war. Um, oh, as sorry, you said, some 34. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Of course, um, 
as you mentioned, some of the unique stuff they had in early war was those hollow charges, which were quite advanced technology at the time. But they also jumped with flamethrowers and heavy numbers of SMGs. Um, but as many people know, I guess the unique um, characteristic of the Polshimjager was that they jumped without weapons. So they, the only thing they jumped with was their pistols and knives. And the reason for that is that the German parachutes um, were only attached to the um, parachutist in one place. So they had a single um, point of connection with the paratrooper, whereas the the US and allied ones used those, you know, you'll see classic pictures. They have two um, straps coming off their back leading up yeah. to the parachute. Um there were pluses and minuses to that. The plus was that the Germans were able to drop much lower than the Allies, um, where but the parachute couldn't carry as much weight, so they couldn't jump with their weapons. So that's why they dropped weapons containers instead of jumping with their weapons, which ultimately proved probably to be a worse downside than having to jump high because it... Um, meant that, particularly as they exposed in Crete, that these people were stuck on the ground without weapons for um, right. quite an extended period because it was often quite hard to get to the um, the drop containers, particularly if they were having to fight their way through to them. Now, a lot of what you just said reminds me quite a lot about Japanese paratroopers who also wore the this, a similar uniform early in the war that looked a lot like early... Falschmerger uniforms in that they almost looked like they were wearing shorts over pants. Um, they also didn't carry weapons when they jumped so much as having their weapons dropped by containers. And I think the parachute design was similar. I could be wrong, though. Please don't uh, yell at me, Internet. Pete, was there... Was, were the Axis powers sharing notes, so to speak, on this? Uh, or was one influenced more by the other? I'm assuming the Germans did it first. Yeah, I mean, everyone was influenced by the Germans. The The Soviets were actually the leaders in this field in the early 1930s, as I mentioned earlier. But mm. basically, in that mid-1930s period, Stalin shot everyone. So they sort of, sort of fell behind. Um, and the Germans were absolutely the leaders at the start of World War II. I think the Soviets still had parachute units, but I think it was only the Soviets and the Germans. Um, and everyone else, obviously, after the success of Eben and Al and other operations, just went, oh, we need some paratroopers too. And for the Axis powers, like the Japanese, the obvious place to look was the Germans, and they certainly exchanged information with the Germans. Um, I don't know exactly how much they exactly copied things like parach parachutes, but um, absolutely, the Japanese were very heavily influenced by the Germans, and the, the Germans gave them a lot of information to help set up their own paratrooper force. Nice. Uh, well, what sort of weapons um, were they carrying? I mean, I guess we, we covered what they carried, but we also know that uh, paratroopers were sometimes dropped in with support weapons. What sort of things were they dropped in with during early war? And does that change over the war? Yeah, so support weapons, they quickly realized were required to hold ground. Um, so initially they were dropped with things like light and medium mortars were their main forces, uh, source of support weapons. But um, they also, so the light infantry gun, the LG something yeah. 18, I can't remember correctly, the um, 20 mil flak, um, both could either be bought in via glider or drop uh, or bought in by um, JU-52 later. So, I mean, 
one of the key tactics was that they'd seize an airfield and then um, they'd actually fly in a lot of their support equipment. So, as I say, the 20mm flak gun was to secure the airfield and the um, the infantry support gun to provide them with some light artillery support. But, you know, they quickly realised even before the war that that wasn't going to be enough. So they actually had a couple of development programs that sort of came to fruition around the mid-war time period. Mm-hmm. Um and to make things lightweight, so they had a program to develop a recoilless rifle um, as an artillery. So that um, resulted in a 75 millimeter gun, which came in around the time of Crete. Um, and then they had a, a larger version, 105 millimeter gun, um, which I love in bolt action, um, which uh, came a little more into the mid-war period. So that provided them with some decent mobile fire support. Um, There are a couple of other sort of unique weapons that were developed for their lightweight and with um, parachute in mind. So um, they had, uh, towards the end of the war, you saw these start to emerge from development. So they had the 2.8-centimetre Panzerbusch 41 squeeze bore mm-hmm. anti-tank gun slash rifle, which some of you will have seen. Um, it's a very odd looking elephant type gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get one to put on, you can get one to put on top of the half tracks. Or the triple and they two. Have some inter- yeah, and they have some interesting rules, isn't it? If you're within half range, you get full extra penetration you do. Um, with that gun. Um, and the last one is probably worth mentioning is the pup. Pupchin rocket gun, which was oh, basically yes. an early version, early version of the um, Panzer uh, Shrek, mm-hmm. um, which is basically just larger and on a wheeled carriage. So it's like a Panzer Shrek that's more of a light gun type arrangement. Um, so they had some interesting weapons, but the reality is that they were no longer jumping by this point and the need for lightweight was not really important and they actually just started adopting a lot of heavy and support weapons um, from just, you know, normal army stocks. So you start seeing them with normal anti-tank guns and even towards the late war, they actually start even acquiring armor. Oh, wow. Now, of course we do think of Falschmeager as having some of the first assault weapons ever in, in the world. You know, we think of Germany as having the first assault rifles, but the one that we often think of was the second version, and the very first was developed for the Falschmeager, which was the FG-42, if I'm getting my numbers correctly. Um, yep. Is this roughly when that came in, or was that was were they using those during this early war period as well? Or was that sort of no, post-Crete? That was definitely post-Crete. The, I mean, they started development quite early. Um, the early war experience told them they needed something with more firepower, but... Um, they didn't actually, the first ones weren't actually used until what I would call the end of the mid-war period. So they were actually, I believe, first used in the operation to rescue Mussolini. Yes. Um, and the Luftwaffe weapon, the FG-42, was, you know, it's quite an advanced weapon. Um, and it was designed to both function as a rifle, but also to function as a light machine gun. Um, so it had a very high rate of fire. Um, so kind of almost like a cross between an assault rifle and a bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they started using those around the, the as I say, the, the end of the mid 
war period. So I'm sort of talking late 43, I believe. Um, and they were used first in Italy quite extensively, but they were already in um, the hands of a number of people by the time of Normandy. Mm-hmm. Although interestingly, they were not, they were quite well liked, but the problem is they were difficult to manufacture. And so in the end of the day, the Folschermager actually ended up probably using far more of the MP44 assault rifles than they did of the FG42s. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Hmm. I guess that makes sense, right? Because they were a lot more easy to uh, acquire yeah. and build. Yeah, the M- MP44 was specifically designed to be mass-produced, whereas the FG42 was sort of a craftsman-type weapon. Um, so they just, at the end of the day, they, they, there were more MP44s, and they were happy to use those. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's let's get into the mid-war, shall we? So post-Crete, um, the role for the Fallschirmjäger definitely changed. Um, can you talk to us about how, or, uh, what the role of the Fallschirmjäger really was between sort of mid-1941 and sort of the end of 1943? And what were some of the significant places where they fought and what were some of the actions that we know them for? Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing being the large-scale airborne operations were just off the table. I mean, um, both just the sheer number of losses, but also um, I I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not. I haven't actually got to the bottom of it, but certainly um, there's a myth that Hitler was not keen on doing any large large airborne operations after Crete. Um, So they were largely used they were still elite troops, so they were largely used in a firefighting role. They were sort of moved from front to front because they were light infantry. They were nice and easy to move. So wherever the problem came up, you could quickly move the Fallschirmjäger and throw them in. So you see them all over the all over the global conflict. So they were um, used in Russia. They were used in North Africa, and they were used in Italy. So basically, whenever it looked like the Allies were going to break through or and a front needed urgent reinforcement, you'd throw in some Fallschirmjäger. And you, this is where you get a period of, you know, sort of, um, I guess, well-known task groups. So the Ramke task group mm-hmm. in um, North Africa is probably the best-known one. But there were similar sort of task groups in Italy and Russia where um, some Fallschirmjäger could be thrown together under a commander and just um, chucked in to hold the front because you could depend on them. They were well-trained, well-armed, and could be moved very quickly. But they did still undertake some airborne operations, just not on the same scale as early war, but probably some of the most notable were after the Italians surrendered, um, the FJ were used in the Italy theatre to recapture the occupied Greek islands of Leros and Crete, which were quite significant and well-known allied defeats during that period. So, Pete, I guess in the mid-war, I mean, clearly we talked about their uniform changing over time. How did the how did their appearance change? Um, as this is t- directly applicable to how we model these on the tabletop, right? Yeah. So after Crete, you definitely saw that second um, type smock pretty much go everywhere within the um, FJ. So you do see that more baggy pants look and the overcoat look, um, and they tried a couple of different types of camouflage um during that period and um generally referred to as marsh and splinter type camouflages Mm -hmm. so there's more than one design to um try out um for your fj painting during that period there were they tried about three or four different designs during that period um and on top of that there were some what 
appear to be just local designs of people um, making stuff locally, um, particularly in North Africa, to for their own needs. Um, th but the other thing too is as they jumped less, um, there was to, an effort to save cost and recognition they weren't going to be jumping. They started to transition some of the new Luftwaffe recruits from giving them these old-style jump smocks to just general Luftwaffe-type um, field uniforms and Luftwaffe jackets. So you're, in this period, you start to see a mix of that, the veterans tenaciously hanging on to their jumpsuits, um, and particularly the early war veterans who uh, who fought to hang on to their early war-style jumpsuits, which marked them out as veterans, and some of the new recruits who were, um, in some cases, not even issued with jumpsuits at all. They were just issued with um, Luftwaffe field uniforms and jackets. So you, you see that sort of mixed look starting to come in, and you, in, as we'll talk about later, you see that as a sort of distinction between early war minis and late war minis. Yeah, and uh, we did talk about the the helmets having a lack of covers or netting uh, earlier in the war because, of course, they were jumping, but because they are no longer jumping, now is where you're starting to see those camouflage covers and netting starting to appear, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also this period, as we just mentioned before, where you start to see them move away from airborne-specific type weapons, light-type weapons, to start acquiring sort of heavier um heavier weapons for more just normal ground combat so in this period you they start to pick up heavier anti-tank guns like the 50 mil and the 75 mil pack guns and even towards the end of this period in italy they start um getting armor with the a unit acquiring martyr to um anti-tank um vehicles so they're, they're moving away from their jump role to more of a elite type infantry role during this period now, at the squad level, though, they were still using, a lot of times, they were still using uh, submachine guns. They were using rifles. Of course, we, we talked about the, the FG-42 uh, and the MP-44 starting to make a, an appearance here, although I think the MP-44 was later in the war. What we are talking about from the machine gun level, though, is the transition from the MG-34 to the MG-42. I know it doesn't really make a difference rules-wise, but if you're trying to figure out which machine gun to uh, to give the squads, in the mid-war time period, you could almost get away with either, right? Because there would have been MG-34s from earlier in the war, and the MG-42 would have been in, rolled out as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it does depend on the unit as well, because certainly... Um, the earlier war units that were closely linked to the still um, have some of their early war equipments would definitely still be using the MG34 in the mid-war period, um, whereas the newer units start that they'd been building up during the mid-war period started with the MG42. So basically, for for those modelling, it's the MG34 is the round barrel and the MG42 is a square barrel, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Uh, well, let's jump into the late war because the Fallschirmjäger absolutely had a role in uh, in the war significantly towards the end, as they were sort of used as a stopgap in many places to plug holes uh, because they do have that elite reputation. But even I guess the the quality of their troops was starting to be dilu uh, diluted at this point as more recruits were sort of shoved in. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Definitely. So this is the period where the Fallschirmjäger are known as the defenders. Um, you know, top of everyone's list is really um, Monte Cassino mm -hmm. in Italy. Um, knows about the tenacious FJ defence at Monte Cassino. But 
for many battles where they were the cornerstone of defence. So you have Saint Low, Brest, Caratans, which right. people will know from Band of Brothers mm-hmm. in France, and then on the road to Arnhem for those who have uh, watched a bridge too far, it's mm-hmm. the Bolshemiego who are holding up the armed advance. Um, and then finally they were fighting in Berlin. So yeah, definitely they were um, often called upon to be the the hard men of any particular defence. But as you've said, there's really a change in the quality of the troops. Like the early war, mid-war Folschimiege units that had been stood up in those periods and properly trained um, were still quite capable. They still had a carter of um, veteran troops to give the new troops training and backbone. But also during this period, they just ex- rapidly expanded the FJ um, because it was partly just propaganda, like FJ units having more FJ units was seen as a good thing because people saw them as being elite, even if they were not. So a lot of the late war left FJ units were just Luftwaffe personnel who had been standing around doing very little because there was no planes flying anymore, thrown together in what were called FJ units. So you see that in bolt action, the fact that um, there's now, for the late war period, there's entries for green um, FJ. That's right. So basically, they're just inexperienced guys. They've got some esprit de corps because someone's given them a FJ badge, but mm-hmm. probably not a lot better trained than the uh, most inexperienced of the Wehrmacht. So uh, you, you, it's a very mixed period where there is some really high-quality FJ units um, and there are some green FJ units. And you see that green unit, particularly in the Battle of the Bulge, um, a lot of those FJ units were these new green units and was probably the last airborne drop of the war, um, which was pretty disastrous um, because, A, the FJ hadn't been given much airdrop training in the last couple of years of the war. In fact, they pretty much stopped um, parachute training um, by 1944. Um, And they dropped them in terrible conditions in the winter and it was just Basically, they just all died before they could complete their mission and only a handful managed to get out again. So it's that period you see that, yes, there's some high-quality troops, mainly on the defensive, um, but also in this period, the FJ, um, not not every FJ was elite. Right, right, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about the equipment. Now, The from what I understand, the uniforms don't change significantly from the mid to late war but some items and equipment do and the jumpsuits become increasingly scarce as uh, supplies um, were harder to come by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically they just, they're not jumpy anymore. So they just decided to stop making and issuing jumpsuits. So in terms of figure mix, what you'll see is a lot more in jackets, a lot more in um, just field uniforms Um and certainly if they're wearing jumpsuits, they're probably wearing them as a coat rather than as a suit. So um, that's the sort of mix you start to see lading, later in the war. Weapons-wise, it's just that continuation of a trend that you start. they start acquiring heavy, heavier weapons. So they acquire a Stug three unit. Mm-hmm. Um, they start acquiring some Flak 88s. And, but I guess most distinctively, as we've already discussed, is they get a large number of assault rifles. The FJ seem to have a a good line or good access to um, both the, obviously the older FJ-42s, which were made for them exclusively, but also the new MP-44s. So um, 
they certainly were still using rifles, absolutely. But I think in terms of percentages equipped with assault rifles, FJ were probably one of the higher percentage equipped units. Now, I'm sure I'm already getting people writing hate mail from when I was talking about mid-war. Did they have uh, the FG-42s in mid-war, or was it really just something that rolled out in the late war? Am I getting mistaken here? No, like... I mean, all these things, it's a debate about how you define things, but I would argue very late mid-war. So basically, late war Italy, you started to see the FG-42 emerging. Right. Um, so you definitely within the Italian theatre and certainly absolutely in, in the Sicily theatre. So um, I remember a recent podcast about a certain bridge. Hey! Um, <laughs> Uh, the Primazole Bridge, for those who are wondering at home, uh, go back and listen. It's a great episode. Paul Schmager in there. Definitely uh, lots to discuss with the Green Devils there. Sorry, Pete. Um, let's continue with that. Go on. So, yeah, depending on exactly when you want to play, but, um, yeah, in the Italian theatre, certainly you will start to see FG-42s in the late mid-war period. Um but definitely don't see them in North Africa for anyone thinking about modeling North African army. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about another big addition that the Falschmeger have in the late war, which is, of course, something that happens across German forces. But particularly with these guys is the proliferation of Panzerfausts and Panzerschrecks um, and personal anti-tank weapons really uh, feature prominently in a lot of late war Falschmeger forces. Right. Yeah, and that's completely historically accurate. I mean, if you look at pictures of Volschemjäger from the Normandy um, period and particularly from the Arnhem period where they're mm -hmm. holding back the British forces, yeah, there's uh, Panzerfaust as far as the eye can see, um, and which is, you know, one of the reasons why they were able to defend so successfully. Um, and also um, Panzer Shreks. I mean, we don't see a lot of them in bolt action for a variety of reasons we can discuss, but... The Falschmjäger in particular, uh, being an infantry force, made use of both Panzerfaust and Panzerschrecks. Exactly, right? Well, Pete, I think that gives us sort of a nice historical perspective about Falschmjäger and the gear that they used throughout the war. Let's talk about them on the tabletop. Now, of course, being paratroopers, they, of course, have the stubborn rule, but basically means that if they are forced to make a morale check, uh, they test on their uh, morale without the minus for pins. So they tend to stick around a lot longer. Having played against Lee Avery's uh, British paratroopers more times than I can count, yes, that rule is very good uh, and keeps forces around for a long time. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that plays out when using Falschmjäger on the tabletop? Yeah, I mean, they're just very tough. Uh, and particularly, I think what it does, it makes them viable to play a historically accurate airborne dropped force. Mm. So a lot of a lot of Falschmjäger you see, and uh, we can talk about this as well, but a sort of late war types mixed in with armor. But mm -hmm. I think there's a real opportunity to do an early war airborne force and actually have it perfectly playable and even um, able to win games. Yeah, and so they did have one vehicle that they dropped with, which is the tracked motorcycle, the 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 Kretengrad, right? Yeah, they could certainly bring that in by um, gliders, and that was to provide some towing for those light weapons like the 20mm flak. That's right. Now, I know that you and your forces and your early war forces, you try and keep with just an infantry 
uh, focus as far as what you put on the tabletop without the armored support. But you do have a credit, Kettengrad, um, and I think that you um, have some some engineers mixed in. You have your flame troopers. Now, Falschmeager did have engineer troops built in. As you said, they did have uh, quite a few flamethrowers added as they went on these drops uh, with their equipment, with their shaped charges. Of course, those shaped charges don't necessarily have a big impact in the bolt-action tabletop. Uh, maybe for mission-specific no. rules, but um, how, do, how would that play out uh, as far as how you equip your forces? So I think if you're going to do an airdrop force, you just have to focus on the fact that it, it it's going to be a um, objective type game is the best way you're going to win with a force like that because you're not going to be able to bring the anti-tank um it just you know they, they didn't have it in airborne drops so your best anti-tank is going to be that flamethrower so um i often will combine that kit and crad with the flamethrower to give me a bit of mobility on the flamethrower and mm-hmm. um your um falchion pioneers um is also potentially another place you can put your flamethrower. So that squad gives you a bit of depth to take a bit of damage while getting the flamethrower up there to take out a tank. Um, and also the Falchion Pioneers, well, there's now a Falchion Pioneer entry in the new soft underbelly book, I believe. Mm-hmm. But um, previously I just uh, used the old here Pioneer squad entry for my Falchion Pioneers. And one of the options under that is the AT grenade launcher. Mm-hmm. So, you're basically down to flamethrower and an AT grenade launcher. So really, I think the focus for an early force like this is you'd basically just have to ignore the armor. If they get close, try and get them. But really, it's about using that um, stubborn and your veterancy, which makes you hard to kill, to um, keep moving forward and focus on the objectives. So uh, lots. Uh, so you're relying on the firepower of your LMG, um, your light mortar, and um, making it a real infantry battle. Yeah. Now, especially since they do have, they are veteran and they have that stubborn, it makes them incredibly durable, as you say. And if you do have people who are firing the big guns at you, it does mean that you might have to go down uh, perhaps more than you might otherwise um, to preserve your numbers. But if you do take the hit, uh, again, you do you are veteran and you are able to walk off taking some losses because of the stubborn. Um, at least that's been my experience facing paratroopers. Do you think that really helps with this force? Yeah, it's just when you're playing infantry force like this, you and you know, under the fire of a big gun, you yeah you're gonna have to go down occasionally. I think most light weapons um, you can afford to just ride it out with your veterancy. Um, but yeah, if you if you get looking at getting hit by uh, medium or heavy howard so you just you have to take it and go down but you know your numbers are generally dice numbers are generally not too bad because you're not paying for armor so you've got a number of smaller squads and that means you can afford for a squad or a unit to go down um and still get plenty of movement or plenty of action in your turn absolutely well let's let's move forward a little bit so that's early war I mean, clearly some of the things that we've been talking about are still applicable as far as being veteran um, for most of the units and then, of course, having stubborn. But the the weapon options really do expand out, um, especially if you're playing Normandy-themed games, for example, or that era. 
Um, can you talk to us about how squad tactics tend to change? Yeah, I mean, the key thing is you move into mid-war and then late-war, um, if you're um, focusing on historical accuracy, is probably, at least in gaming terms, one of the things I like most is being able to get the 10.5-centimetre recoilless rifle, which is basically a medium, which is a medium howitzer. Yeah. Um, but a nice small one that you can hide quite well. So it gives you a bit of boom and a bit of anti-tank. I quite mm -hmm. like it. Um, and then as you move into late war, really the key change is you're starting to equip your FJ with assault rifles and Panzerfaust. Now, Panzerfaust are just a no-brainer. You just you take a couple, usually take generally at least two in each squad. Um, under the version two, the assault rifles is a bit more of a um, question about how many you take. I generally only take um, assault rifles on my uh, squad leader, so my generally my second left, second or first lieutenant, mm -hmm. and I'd throw in two um, bodies with him, both with assault rifles. So you've got like a mini squad, three guys with assault rifles, mm -hmm. which I find works quite well. Yeah, I look. Some people say the hit squad isn't worth it. It's not quote unquote efficient or uh, competitive because you don't have the minus one to hit them because they're not down to two men. But I really do rate, um, especially when they're armed with assault rifles. Uh, that's where the quote-unquote hit squad comes in for me because you're able to reach out and touch someone at 18 inches with two shots each, which means you're not sitting in someone's back pocket, i.e. in assault range immediately, and you can put out some hits and, more importantly, pins, which I find to be really helpful. I like mid-war in particular, um, before we get into the late war fully, I know that you've talked, we've talked about this before. I know that you are a fan of this. People often talk about, oh, machine guns aren't necessarily worth it in bolt action. They're overpriced. Yes, I know the debate. I get it. However, when you're talking Germany in particular, because of Hitler's buzzsaw, they are getting that additional dice. Um, so light machine guns, particularly when you have a squad like the mid-war squad, where you would have two machine guns, you're kicking out a significant amount of firepower at range, 10 dice um, with the light machine guns, plus what other, other rifles or submachine guns the squad has. So if you are looking for a good quote-unquote anchor squad to hold an objective or to keep someone else off of one or just lay out some pins or damage at range, they can be really effective. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to convince anyone, but for mid to late war FJ, I always, I generally take three to four squads, and two of those squads always have two light machine guns in each. And I just find that range and additional firepower um, to be great. Now, because you're often running, you're running an infantry force, you're trying to hold objectives. And having a squad with two LMGs with 36 inch range mm -hmm. on an objective vets and stubborn is bloody hard to shift or even get close to. So yeah. I love them. Yeah, exactly. They're defensive while at the same point having the, I don't know, the firepower that you can be more offensive. You, you want to be, if you need to be. Um, and you're able to, again, because you're able to take the hit and keep going uh, because of the stubborn rule, you really can get to those objectives and then just bunker down. I actually like the right more than the extra shot just being able to hose people at a distance i mm -hmm. think is um, really valuable and i think it's underrated in the debate about are lmgs worth it well particularly if you're playing in a quote-unquote more competitive scene lmgs are generally because they are almost universally poo-pooed 
people just aren't taking them, which means if you are playing someone who has tried to uh, maybe be a little less historical, a little bit more competitive, they may not have those light machine guns or machine guns in general in their force. So all of a sudden, they have uh, a shorter range. Of course, if we're talking Americans, bars have range and then they can move and shoot. Yes, I get it. But talking in general... Um, your average rifleman only has a range of 24 inches, and when you have machine guns that have a longer range, that can give you a significant advantage. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely like my my LMG squads in my Falsham Jaeger in particular. Um, they just give the infantry that extra um, extra oomph. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, talk to us a little bit about the vehicles that you would use maybe to partner up with the Falsham Jaeger Force going mid-year, uh, sorry, mid-war and beyond, given that they are starting to be used more like traditional infantry forces, um, you can start integrating them uh, or incorporating other forces alongside them more accurately um, and historically? Yeah. I mean, if you want to stick with Falschermjäger only, mid-war period, you're looking at the Marta II, mm -hmm. um, late-war period, you're looking at the Stug Three. Both are quite decent options, but... Um, I think, you know, looking at the theatre, I tend to play late war Normandy type Falschermjäger mm -hmm. and in particular they fought um, around the area of the 21st Panzer Division and they're the guys who had all those converted funny French vehicles and I, I just love the vehicles as much as I love anything else. So yes. um, I, I often pick those up, but I think what benefits the Falschermjäger that perhaps the US and the um, British struggle with to an extent is that the Germans for late war period in particular have um, access to a number of self-propelled guns that are open topped mm -hmm. and making them sort of reasonably cheap. So I particularly like to pair my um, Falschermjägers with um, the Stug, uh, either, so Stug um, 33, uh, trying to remember the exact number, but the, it's basically an open-top assault gun um, mm -hmm. with a medium howitzer or a heavy howitzer. And, um, you know, you're talking, off, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember, it's about 150 points for a medium howitzer and it's about 180 points for a heavy howitzer. And so it's just a nice, cheap, with a lot of firepower and I find combines well with the um, veteran FJ troops. So you're generally looking at maybe one assault gun and maybe... Um, often with the FJ, I like to have a um, BMW motorcycle with a LMG with an MMG sidecar, um, or an SDKFZ two 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 armored car. So mm -hmm. um, I find that combination of a um, HE weapon and an auto cannon or an MMG to be um, quite nice and still allow you plenty of points to build up a strong core of FJ. Hundred percent and. I guess that medium machine gun motorcycle is, is such a crucial ad for this because, um, I mean, at regular, they're 40 points. I'm trying to remember what they are at veteran. But if you have that, it is almost like a cheap order dice in an army that is otherwise really expensive points-wise per unit, especially if you're adding things like Panzerfaust assault rifles and machine guns. They can add up. I mean, you are going to have some of the hardest-hitting uh, units in the game because they have the veteran, because they have the stubborn, because they're festooned with all sorts of weapons, right? But they're, you're also paying for that. Um, and so it's nice to have a couple of cheap order dice to mix in with that. Of course, the Germany rule with snap to action can help, 
um, because you're able to sometimes, uh, you know, set up little, little uh, tactics to to meet your opponent and maybe hammer them in a particular spot to offset the fact that you have fewer units. But if I was to say the downside of any Falschmjäger force, you're going to be a low order dice army, and that can really hurt too. Has that been your experience with this, Pete? Yeah, it, you're ending going to end up somewhere. I mean, at, at a thousand points, you're probably going to end up somewhere in the realm of ten to thirteen dice at the most. Um, it, you know, if you're going all veteran, um, exactly. absolutely up around that ten, eleven dice thing. But I mean, at the end of the day, we all know that those veteran dice are much harder to take off the table. Mm-hmm. So someone may be coming with fifteen dice, but you'll probably collect three of them in the first turn. So pluses and minuses. Yeah, I still have uh, I still have fond memories of being of my regular squads charging uh, paratrooper mortar medium mortars, and that you know even though my guys were decked out for assault, getting cleaned up by you know a regular medium mortar team, and by regular I mean veteran. I was just gone. Yeah, bolt action does happen, kids, and you know having high quality troops uh, does really help. Pete, is there anything else you want to talk about tactics-wise, or should we start talking models? Um, look, the last tactics-wise thing I'll mention is a bit of the fun one. So, as I mentioned, late war, you get the option of green Twelshim Jaeger. Oh, so, of course, yes. So, I mean, green's always fun by itself, and the other key thing about green Twelshim Jaeger, at least a couple of the entries, is you can take two LMGs with inexperienced forces. So, um, I, I've run green Falschmjäger. I think they can be a lot of fun. Um, I ran one at Moab a couple of years ago, which I ran with Panzerturm turrets. Um, nice. so <laughs> I think that they're just an additional option to have a bit of fun with. And, um, the combination of green and two LMGs can actually make them quite an effective little force if used, um, sensibly. Nice. Now, before we get into the miniatures, let's follow up on where you can find these now if you're looking for like super early war time period Fallschirmjäger information the germany strikes book and the sea lion strikes book besides the usual unit entry obviously in the uh, armies of germany uh, is that right pete yep so early wars at the moment so those two books germany strikes and the sea lion campaign both of those have fj lists in them and let's talk mid-war. Where can we find some good information about Falschmjäger and those? So, Jewel in the Sun and now Italy Soft Unbelly um, are where you go for your mid-war coverage. Obviously, Jewel in the Sun is early mid-war and mm-hmm. uh, Soft Unbelly is late mid-war. And Soft Underbelly in particular has not only um, theatre lists, but also a number of new unit entries for the FJ as well. That's right. It's And it's a great book, too. I'm hoping to talk about that book soon. Um, well, let's talk late war. If we're talking Falschmjäger late war, where am I getting my information from? Yep. So late war, you want the D-Day U.S. sector book, which is probably the big one because it basically has a whole Falschmjäger army list in it. Mm -hmm. Um, Battle of the Bulge. Um, that's where you're going to find, um, your green FJ. That's right. Um, and obviously market garden. Uh, because as we talked about, the FJ were quite important, at least in the ground um, defense part of that operation. Nice. Well, if since we're playing bolt action and it's made by Warlord, 
obviously the first person or the first yeah the first person we're going to go talk to uh, as far as miniatures goes we're probably going to talk about warlord so warlord does have a wide range of Fallschirmjäger models Pete, can you talk a little bit about that because there's a lot there yeah i mean as you'd expect warlord is basically a one shop one stop shop the centerpiece of that obviously is the plastic box set will give which gives mm -hmm. you 30 figures but basically anything else you can need anything else you might need you'll find at warlord with the caveat that they are definitely that mid to late war period yeah um they have some on the plastic sprue which you could use as early war so they're wearing full jumpsuits but basically it's a mid-war to late war force um but they have a bit of everything um and they even have a couple of extra box sets so you can get a squad box for north africa to do um Ramke's, uh unit but also plenty of support weapons as well so they have the panzerbusch 41 and the 10.5 centimeter recoilless mm -hmm. rifle and also the wonderful kettengrad which you wouldn't want to miss exactly well i gotta say i there's some notables in there now that plastic box set as you say doesn't handle the early war options particularly well um, and it does sort of give you a mix of equipment because they are sort of catering for the mid to late war. But if you are looking to set one, particularly the, the mid war, you may need to buy a couple of boxes to get all of the right uniforms so that everything sort of matches. Um, or am I not saying that right? No, I mean, what's good about Warlord is, and we'll see there's a couple of options you can mix and match in that mid late war period, but all of their support boxes, um, you can just, pick up and integrate into your force. So you, you've got your obvious command, mortar, sniper, flamethrower, mm -hmm. all the stuff you need to mix into that mid to late war period and give you a full Volshimega force. Um, if you want, as I say, you can definitely build your full force out from Warlord without going anywhere else. Yeah. And I got to say, the, the ram key box that you mentioned a minute ago, it is literally some of my favorite models that Warlord has ever produced. Um, friend of the show, Casey, who I mentioned in the, the, in the post credit every time, has been painting some of those recently. And my God, are they great models. The posing is fantastic. It's a metal box, 10 particular, uh, 10 models in it. It's just outrageously good. Um, let's, let's move a little further afield. If you're going to go outside of Warlord, uh, specifically, if you're looking for early war, should we talk Foundry? Yep. Foundry are probably one of the best-known early war FJ Rangers. They've been around for quite some time, mm -hmm. and potentially even sculpted by Aries, I think. It is. Um, yeah, they are. <laughs> so these guys are distinctly that very early war pattern-type smock that with the with the closed legs and that tight shorts look. Um, it's... It's a small but a really very nice range. It includes all the stuff you'd need for an early airborne dropped force. So there's light mortars, the MG34 LMG, flamethrowers, and importantly, anti-tank rifles, which are quite nice with the FJ. Mm -hmm. um, but being foundry slash peri figures, as you expect, there's some lovely character figures in there as well. Yes. Um, and particularly, they do the FJ just landed with just pistols and they do the drop canisters as well so you can do that whole fight for the um getting to the drop canisters and you can also do some really nice scenic bases with that as well and some objectives there's just a lot there it's so cool 
Yeah, no, it's a lovely range, and I have some of those too. So, um, well, I, I have pretty much all of these. I'll, I'll tell you what I don't have, and probably quicker. <laughs> <laughs> As we hit them, you can tell me what you don't recommend. Uh, I also have a couple of those foundry models, uh, and mo- yeah, the they as you say, they are they are they are old models. They've been around significantly longer than I've been. I mean, at least twenty years. Uh, but they don't necessarily show their age. They are very nicely done. Uh, and they are slightly smaller than the Warlord scale models. But I, I really do really like those models. Should we jump over to Black Tree? Because uh, they definitely have a nice range of Falschmager as well. Yeah. They um, have quite a nice range a large one again metal so and the foundry are all in metals didn't mention that previously oh, sorry, but, um, yep. uh, so they pretty once again have pretty much everything you need they have figures with rifles smgs um but they also go into the late war with fg42s mg44s panzer Faust, panzer shreks it's a very nice range and as you mentioned on your pinsol bridge episode mm-hmm. they do do some lovely characters in particular, I really like their um, Falsham Pioneer characters. So they've mm-hmm. got guys with wire cutters and um, explosive charges and that sort of thing. So um, I quite like those. And it, it's a very, what I uh, would call a very clean range. They're not very cu- cluttered. So I like them in the sense that they're quite easy to paint mm-hmm. and um, nice chunky metal. And there's a couple of support options in the range too. They do a pack 40. They do the IG-18 infantry gun, which is the one I couldn't remember before. Mm-hmm. Um, and a motorcycle. So yeah, it's, it's a very nice range. The only thing I will mention about the range, and it's a, it sounds a little bit churlish, but they're all sculpted with fully enclosed jumpsuits. That's so, right. <laughs> <laughs> so they look very early war. Um, even though some of them are carrying late war weapons. And as yeah. I said, it, some of those smocks certainly carried over into late war because veterans wanted to hang on to them. But with if everyone in your late war force is in those jump smocks, it's it, it might give certainly some historical players a bit of OCD. But otherwise, I think it's a very nice range. Yes. I was I did uh I saw your notes on that and I went, Oh yeah, they do, don't they? It hadn't even occurred to me. But as you said, yeah, they, they just didn't wear those, did they? Um, Gorgon. Now we've talked about Gorgon a lot when we're talking about, uh, some of the more out there ranges, uh, and they do some nice models in here, right? Yeah. I I mean, I love Gorgon. They just, they keep doing really interesting things. They do, um, they do some FJ to fit in with their, um, other Norway campaign ranges. So you've got a, um, you've got uh, figures wearing those early war smocks. Um, you've got MMG mortar and they've got some pioneer figures as well, but they're definitely that very much that early war to fit into that Norway campaign. Although any early war campaign up to about Sicily, you'd be fine using these figures. And like most of the Gorgon, they're very nice sculpts. Yeah, they are. Now I have never heard of fixed bayonets. You're going to have to help me out on this one. <laughs> I'm not going to be much help. This is, you know, when you go and you think, I know all this stuff, but I'll just double check what's out there to make sure I haven't missed something. Well, I missed something. There you um, go. <laughs> so fixed bayonets just emerged from somewhere. Um, I believe they're a new range. Um, it's a pretty small range at the moment. They're definitely that early war type figure with fully enclosed jump smocks. Um, and they've only got three packs so far, but that includes infantry, LMG and mortar. Um, they look quite nice, and I'm look, looking forward to an excuse to order some to actually see them in person. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to have to look them up. I, I know nothing about them. Uh, again, early war, and everything we've kind of been talking about outside of Warlord has been fairly early war at this point. Let's get a little bit later in the piece with some of our favorite sculptors. Of course, we're talking the Perry Twins. Um, they have an excellent range of Falschmieger. Now, these guys are a little smaller than some of the ranges we've talked about. They are still 28 millimeter or 25 millimeter, but they are a slightly smaller in stature, but they are outstandingly good models. Uh, talk to us a little bit about them, because they're more Mediterranean, right? Yeah, absolutely, and the Perrys have done this specifically for the Mediterranean theatre. Um, they're beautiful sculpts, um, but uh, I would just say they are that little bit smaller, and so I've bought a total four set for the Perrys so that I'm not mixing them with other ranges, mm -hmm. but they are lovely sculpts and they include some weird and wonderful stuff like the 75 mil recoilless rifle which is i think going to be great in mid-war games mm -hmm. and the uh the pzb anti-tank rifle um the squeeze ball weapon so it's and lastly they do if you want to get into that sort of end of um, mid-war period they've got a pack of um, figures with the fg42 as well so it's a very comprehensive range. You'll have no trouble building a mid-war Mediterranean slash Italian force and possibly pushing that force into late war as well. And they also do a Kettengrad, right? A very beautiful little Kettengrad, yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, God, I love the Perry stuff. Um, well, if we're going to talk World War II ranges, obviously we've talked some iconic ranges already, but one cannot hit World War II and not talk about Artisan. Um, now, Artisan... Their Fallschirmjäger models tend to be middle late war. Am I getting this right? Yeah, the Artemson range is much more late war focused. So mm -hmm. you're looking much more at jackets and open jump smocks and equipped with um, Panzerfausts. But look, beautiful range. I mean, any sort of minis you talk about, Artisan has always got to be one of the best. They're lovely. They're lovely sculpts, and the FJ are no exception. Um, and you're getting into those late war weapons, like you've got figures equipped with the MP44 and the FG42 and um, the Panzer Shrek as well. So it's a lovely range. And it was it used to be even better. They produced a pack of Ramp K Brigade figures. They did, um, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I grabbed one, um, but for, they've taken them out of out of production now. So hopefully they will come back one day. But um, if you can find one somewhere. Uh, I'd grab it. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's a bummer that they stopped making those. Those are great. Uh, I know. I think Warlord Tobu had them back in the day. Well, let's jump over. Uh, Crusader also make Falschmjäger models. Yeah, Crusade Crusader like Artisan is available through Northstar. Mm -hmm. um, they are an early war range, so you got both ends from Northstar if you wanna if you wanna go go big <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> in your ordering. Um, but it is, once again, quite a comprehensive range, particularly if you want to do airborne drops. There's no problem in doing an airborne force. You've got your ATR, the anti-tank rifle, your MMG, medium water. Um, and also one of the great things that found, uh, sorry, that Crusader does is they offer a pack of just FJ gun crew. So you can add those guys to any gun you want and make it an FJ gun, which is really good. Yeah, that's really I mean, helpful, right? Oftentimes, when you look at building these forces, some of the things you end up just not having and having to either convert or, you know, 
big borrow steel from somewhere is are just crew for some of these weapons. You can often use them for a variety of weapons that you can find in other places or get 3D printed. It's the crew that are the problem, and the fact that they have that as a separate blister is awesome. Yep. No, it's a really it's a really helpful addition that not many people do. I only know of one other company that does it, and that's our next friends on the list, May 1940. Nice. Um, hey, tell us about them. So they ran a Kickstarter in 2019. Um, as I mentioned before, May 1940 is a guy at, um, in Holland um, who does um, Dutch-related miniatures, and he didn't Kickstarter for FJ in 2019. Their early war obviously related to the Dutch invasion. Um, but the Kickstarter was very successful, and he released quite a large range. Um, so you've got... As I said already, you've got like gun crews, but also even for things like MMGs, you've often got two poses. You've got a firing pose and a moving pose. Same for the anti-tank rifles. So if you want to do an early war range, this one's quite extensive and, and really has a lot of depth of variety. It's not just one pose. Um, so it's a great place to look. And some really interesting things like captured Dutch weapons, um, MP38 SMG, stuff you're just not getting elsewhere. Yeah, nice. Um, well, let's talk about another range that may not be in production at the moment, but was also funded through a Kickstarter. Then um, that's Here 46. Yeah, no, Here 46 is another mid-war Mediterranean range. Did a Kickstarter in 2019 also. Um, very Once again, good Kickstarter fulfilled, no problems. Um, just for a variety of life reasons, Here 46 is on a break at the moment and it's not clear if they're going to come back. But if they do, it's a great range to flesh out your mid-war Mediterranean-type force. And they have a couple of very interesting character figures and perhaps uh, uniquely, at least for a unit, they have the 8.cm Puption rocket gun um, as an option. Nice. So back, um, I'll definitely be picking up one of those. Yeah, I love some of their vehicles. They do some weird and wonderful stuff. I'm hoping that they definitely come back soon now that I'm painting up some more bolt yep. action again. I have one of their super late war, uh, heavy, heavy German AT guns that isn't an 88. And uh, it is comically large or long barrel on, uh, on an otherwise pack 40. So uh, I'm excited to paint that up because it's ridiculous. Yeah, they do some really great late war stuff, and uh, I got a, a fair bit. I got a fair bit of their stuff. I just didn't catch the FJ before they had to um, shut up shop. Uh, yeah, COVID. Thanks. Um, First core. I'll admit I don't know this range. Uh, help me out, Pete. Um, they're a British company. They're not incredibly well known in the World War Two um, gaming space, unless you like Home Guard. Um, they do a mm -hmm. really big range and they're quite well known for that but they do do a small fj range um it sort of fits with it uh generally early to mid-war theme of their figures so they are in jump smocks um it's a smaller range so you're only getting basic infantry and an lmg but what they do do um and first course does first corps do a number of these things they do some nice um uh, terrain or additional pieces so they do very nice resin drop containers um, for the FJ and they do like an FJ supply dump and some FJ casualty markers. So uh, there's some really nice stuff to add to an FJ force at, at First Corp. Nice. 
Um, well, let's let's talk Gaddis Gaming. Um, now they picked up the Battle Order Honors range at some point, and I am well familiar with the Battle Honors fins, but I am well aware that finding pictures of some of these models can be nightmarish. Um, I didn't realize they made Falschmjäger as well. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about these? You've actually seen some of these. Am I making that up? Uh, I can't. Um, I can't find many pictures either, unfortunately. I've found a couple when you do deep searches mm -hmm. um, online and Googling, but not enough to say much comprehensively about the range. Just from their descriptions, they appear to be sort of mid to late war. Um, and I've really got to try out Gaddis Gaming because they do a number of ranges, French, um, Russian, that I do want to look at. But mm. uh, I, And I'll throw some FG in when I make an order, but unfortunately I can't say too much at the moment other than they have what looks like to be a quite decent range, including a motorcycle for the late war period. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about one of the Falschmjäger ranges that I have seen probably more than almost any other other than Warlord, and that's offensive miniatures. Um, now, they tend to be slightly more realistically proportioned than some of the other ranges we've talked about. Um, they tend to be a little thinner with the heads and faces and hands that aren't sort of comically big. Um, like you would see in most miniatures uh, on a tabletop, these actually look like they're humanly proportioned. Um, but the quality of these models is excellent, and they do a really nice range, right, Pete? Yeah, and it's keeps it's still growing and it's growing. They're adding stuff all the time. It's a very nice and quite extensive range. You'd have no trouble building a late war, um, probably mostly late war FJ force with these guys, but. I think one of the things that sets um, offensive apart is they have really done a lot to do support and additional weapons. So um, they do the 75 millimeter recoilless rifle. They do a full pack 40 and Nebelwerfel with FJ Cruise. Nice. And they're the only people I know who do a heavy FJ mortar. Um, and they do lots of nice individual characters in their packs. So they do artillery observers, field police, rifle grenades, just stuff I haven't seen elsewhere. And one uh, worth mentioning is the King Tiger diorama. Um, if anyone types in FJ and Battle of the Bulge, you'll see this quite iconic picture of FJ sitting on top of a, a King Tiger. That's and right. so mm -hmm. um, Offensive offers all of the minis to do that as a diorama. I love that they also have motorcycles and a uh, Falschmjäger Kuba wagon as well, which, you know, you just don't get enough Kuba wagons on the tabletop, which, you know, they're great models. <laughs> yeah, you can never have enough Kuba wagons <laughs> or getting grabs. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, well, Westwind. Now, I have recently gone through some Westwind models, and uh, they are a little dated uh, by modern quality standards, and I hate to speak ill of someone. Um, I did have quite a few Westwind Soviet models. Um, they're a little hit and miss, but they do have some great stuff in general. Um, if you find what you look for, they do have good photos. So you can, if they're your style, they're great. If they're not your style. Don't buy them. <laughs> Pete, talk yeah. to us about these guys. Uh, as I say, there's great pictures online. Check before you buy. Um, I would say that the FJ sculpts are some of the latest sculpts they did in yeah. World War II. So um, the newer. Um, so worth checking them out and having a look. Um, I guess particularly if you're in the U.S. and, and want to save on some postage, yes. um, I think that 
check them out and have a look and see whether you like that style or not. Well, not model ranges, but individual character-wise, Stussy's, Stussy's Heroes definitely has some great Falschmager personality models, right? Um, now, you'll know the history behind these names, so can you give us a little, uh, who are these folks and uh, who, uh, which of the, I guess, who do they make and who are they? So they've got at least three FJ personalities at the moment, so... Eric, I apologize for the pronunciation in advance. So Eric Lepofsky, I believe it is. Um, mm -hmm. He's quite famous for a Normandy rescue operation where um, he went out from German lines. I believe it was from the Fortress Brest and actually rescued a bunch of um, captured um, FJ from the French resistance by driving through the um, Allied lines in captured French and US vehicles dressed up. Um, as U.S. and French resistance fighters. So, uh, you know, really boys-owned um, rescue operation um, in the Normandy campaign, well worth looking up and reading about because it's quite amazing what he managed to achieve. Um, the second character they do is Walter Koch, and he's the guy who led the assault on Eben and Al. Mm -hmm. And the third one is Walt Rudolf Witzig, which is just, he's an FJ who fought basically throughout a number of battles in the war, and I guess you would call a general um a general badass for surviving <laughs> that long and and managing to last through most of the war yeah exactly um well let's let's talk about something we haven't done a lot of in the past there is a range of 3d print options for fj as well now you're gonna have to help me with the pronunciation on this one really i was hoping you would help me um, <laughs> i want to say esky miniatures but I'm, i just can't but help but wonder whether that's because I'm an Australian. Yeah. Is Esky something just anywhere else in the world? E-S-K-I-C-E. And yes, I am also now Australian, and my immediate thought was Esky as well, but um, that is what we call uh, where we put our cold beverages on a hot day and we're having a picnic. So Esky Miniatures, tell us about them. <laughs> so he runs a Patreon where he produces World War II Rangers every every month or so, and... Um, he produced an FJ range a while ago, which is now available on Wargaming 3D. It's really very good and quite extensive. Um, I particularly like the vehicles and support. So he does Nebelwerf, a pack 40, Cooper wagon, a nice trailer on it. Um, and even the um, Pupchen rocket gun. Mm -hmm. But uh, as with all 3D, I'd, in terms of the actual infantry, I'd just say, look, check them out and see whether that style is for you because... For 3D, details tend to be exaggerated to ensure they print okay. So yeah. it's just a matter of does that does that look fine to you? And I, I mean, I think they look quite nice. I'm not knocking it at all, but um, it's up to you. And also, they do have the black tree thing going for them as well, that they're all wearing jumpsuits, even mm -hmm. though some of them are obviously meant to be late war. So once again, whether that bothers you or not, probably not for most people. So just roll with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I think the one thing that I'm really missing here, Pete, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of FJ miniatures wearing winter gear. Um, now, FJ, I mean, Falschmager definitely fought Battle of the Bulge in Russia. Uh, and they. So could you create these out of plastic kits? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you can get like 80% of the way there using like German winter troops because they certainly wore normal German overcoats. Um, but they did still tend to wear some of their own gear. And also they, for reasons that I don't know, quite know, they 
used a lot of SS gear as well, particularly in the winter fighting. So, mm. um, you know, you can probably cobble it together, but it's probably the one gap in the FJ range at the moment. Like, there's virtually every other period covered down to great detail, but winter FJ is just a gap at the moment, and that's partly because their battles in Russia just aren't as well known. Mm-hmm. Um but look, if someone out there wants to produce a winter FJ range, um, where, where do I send my money? I was going to say, uh, shut up and take my money, says Pete West. Yeah. <laughs> well, Pete, you mentioned glider troops before. And we, I mean, clearly as someone who uh, has been to the D-Day Museum in the United States a few times and has you know watched Band of Brothers and has done some research here uh, for different battles, I often think gliders with allied troops in particular – I did know that FJ did use some gliders, um, but I definitely didn't know that someone made them. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what Sarissa brings to the table? Yeah, so the the most iconic FJ glider, although there were one or two others, is the DFS-230, and that's the glider you see on top of Eben and Al, but it's mm-hmm. also the same glider you see during the rescue for Mussolini. So they actually used them throughout the war. Um, and... They're quite small, unlike the Allied gliders, which were large and designed to carry like 20-plus troops. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I think they were only designed to carry like eight paratroopers. So um, they're great to fit on a gaming table because they don't overwhelm it, and you can literally drop two or three on a gaming table for a scenario, and it it will look fine. And as you say, probably the first place to look at that is Sarissa because they do a very nice MDF um, um, version of the DFS-230 glider. Now, I do know that occasionally people sort of, uh, do I really want to get into uh, MDF? If you want to go resin, there's an option for that as well, right? Absolutely. There's an option for, <laughs> there's an option for any type of material you may, you may prefer. Um, but the uh, resin option is done by a company called barrage miniatures and i'm actually looking at their website right now and man that looks like a great model right yeah it's a nice chunk of resin um and it is certainly going to be less fiddly than trying to put together one of those mdf ones i I like what sarissa can do with the mdf but some of those curves can be a bit tricky (laughs) yes very much so all right pete rubicon now, they don't make a, uh, how should I say, a, uh, a glider, but they do make our buddy the Kettengrad, right? Yep, they make a lovely Kettengrad model. So if you're buying something from Rubicon and want to add a Kettengrad in, I quite like their little model. And um, it's just another opportunity to put expand your FJ force and give a bit of mobility, to it, particularly to an early war force. Nice. Uh I, I'm sorry, Pete. I did miss a 3D print option on the yeah. glider, and that's Dewey Cat, right? Yep. Uh, would you recommend? Yeah, no, I love Dewey Cat stuff. He's um, anything made by Dewey Cat has my seal of approval. He does wonderful stuff, and it's generally very easily printed, and also his work is generally pre-supported. So um, I have nothing but. Um, uh, nothing but love for all of Dewey Cat stuff. So if you have a 3D printer, definitely grab his file to print out the DFS-230. Well, last but not least, Scale Fiend uh, makes the the Pupchin, uh, the 8.8-centimeter Pupchin rifle cannon thing. Uh, 
can you tell us about this? Because I have never heard of scale theme. No, neither have I. Another wonderful find in my research. But um, if you don't want um, the 3D printed version and here 46 doesn't come back, there is actually, you can just go out and buy a resin version from these scale theme guys. Looks quite nice. And it is uh, one of the new entries in the soft underbelly book. And it looks like quite a good little unit to try out. So awesome. you can get one if you pick one. Love that. I love that um, companies are making the little bits and pieces that appear in these books so they can we actually feel them on the tabletop. So cool. Pete, thank you. Uh, I mean, I think we've given people options if they want to bring Falschmjäger and put them on the tabletop. Now, in the past, I have done an episode about playing paratroopers in bolt action. Um, I think that that episode, and we, we dig into more tactics on the tabletop and how the whole how the whole role of being a paratroop player sort of works when playing bolt action. I'd recommend listening to that if you're looking for a more deep, dark, tactical analysis. Um, but I think this is a good place to start if you are looking to start with Falschmjäger. Now, Pete, as an experienced Falschmjäger player, do you have any final thoughts for folks if they're thinking about this, um, other than you might need to learn to paint camouflage? Yeah. Splinter camouflage is not the easiest thing in the world to paint, um, but uh, it's well worth trying. And if I can achieve it, anyone can achieve it. And the Falschmjäger are a lot of fun to play, and they just they look unique on the table, both with their uniform and weapons. So um, if you're looking for something, you know, if you've done the Wehrmacht and you're looking for something just sort of slightly different without sort of leaping off the edge and doing... Uh, some real obscure unit. I think Falschmjäger is an obvious and fun place to go. So uh, recommend you check them out. Yeah, definitely. And I'm definitely going to be checking out some of the companies that you mentioned. Pete, again, I cannot thank you enough for doing the hard work and the hard yards doing the research yep. because, man, there's stuff in here that even I haven't heard of, and I'm going to be doing some digging. Uh, I am, might be looking at Barrage uh, Miniatures uh, terrain as we speak. But... <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, just one last thing. So if you're interested in any of these things and you didn't take notes, all of these um, links and sources are available on my website at Bolt Alt Action. If you look under the Special Forces tab, you'll find all of the things we talked about today listed and linked there. And that's Bolt Alt Action. Uh, I, you beat me to the plug there, Pete. Thank you. Is, as always, it is awesome and comprehensive. Yep. <laughs> And if we're talking FJ, I guess there's just one last place to talk about. Um, now, we did talk about the Primsol Bridge Kickstarter from Valhalla Games uh, in a previous episode. But guys, really check it out. Um, I think it looks amazing. Pete, you funded it. I'm sorry, you've uh, backed it. I'm, I will back it before it ends. Uh, and it does have, by the time this goes out, it should have just under a week left. Um, of course, that is a historical, sort of a, a game-agnostic historical scenario slash history slash modeling guide by the guys over at Valhalla Games. It is outstanding. Um, I've, I've seen the, the, the press preview, so I've seen about 30 pages of the book, and it is one of the best researched uh, and high-quality gaming uh, resources I've seen for Bolt Action, bar none. Like It is outstanding. So if you have not checked it out, please go over to Kickstarter and check out uh, The Battle for Primazole Bridge. Um, again, Valhalla Games, 
absolutely excellent. And if you have not gone back to listen to that episode, please listen. The guys know what they're talking about, and it's it just makes for really good storytelling. Yeah, I highly recommend. Uh, Pete, any thoughts on that? Well, you need you need to get that book so you can have some fun with all these FJ miniatures you're going to buy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Sorted. Well, Pete, again, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to put this together and for coming on. Uh, I know that you are extremely busy this time of year. So really, thank you, as always. Always a pleasure, Brad. Thanks. All right. Well, guys, and thank you for listening at home. Uh, I know this is the silly time of year. There was a gap uh, in my episode uh, production, uh, but I am a school teacher, and we're trying to cram school camps, report writing, book week, graduation, and school musical sort of all into the same time period. I apologize for the gap. Uh, We should not have another one going up until Christmas and the New Year, so uh, stick with us. We'll have some great content, uh, including the Return of the Warlord Games official podcast, and I'm looking forward to to bringing more of what you love to you. Um, Thank you again to everyone who's been messaging. I've gotten tons of feedback saying, please keep the bolt-action content coming, so I guess we will. But if you want to hear other things, and or you keep wanting to hear me doing this, please, your feedback is welcome. Just go to Cast Dice on Facebook, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. And uh, yeah, send us your sneers, jeers, abuses, love, and and everything else. Uh, Holiday well wishes. Whatever you feel like sending, I'll be there. You are guaranteed a response. Uh, My name is Brad. Hi, I will be the one who is responding. Just please keep in mind, uh, it is the silly time of year for teachers, and I am in Australia, so it might take me a couple hours to get back to you. But uh, I guess on that note, the only thing I have left to say is, uh, guys, when you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Friends are gone.